This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Holy Ashes. Mary Sue's. A Gumshoe Fallacy. And Emmanuel Vilakovsky. Hey, Robin, your Kickstarter campaign for Feng Shui 2 is in progress, even as we speak. Closing on Friday, October 17th. How's it going? Well, we're recording this in advance, so to find out where we're at, head over to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, action movie role-playing, Robin Laws, or Atlas Games. Statistically speaking, you're probably about to smash through another stretch goal. We have arranged our stretch goals for easy smashing. Like panes of glass being carried across a Hong Kong street, perhaps. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolent heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yeah, the player characters fight across key time periods to control key sites of geomantic power, and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouserer? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer, and a bullet-strewn path to redemption? Because I am the cop of magic, clearly I am the magic cop. Well, look at because there's a hopping vampire headed this way. So, to repeat those Kickstarter search terms, the fun can be joined by typing in Feng Shui, Action Movie Role-Playing, or Robin D. Laws. So, just to clarify, in case you didn't hear the words October 17th in that ad, this day, uh, which is the day that this podcast drops, is October 17th. So, if you're listening to this on the day of its release, up until midnight Eastern time, you can still jump on the Kickstarter and see just how far up our ladder of crazy stretch goals people can manage to drive it. However, after that, it and all of its incredible bargains are gone, so if you're listening to this after Friday night, uh, we're sorry to have advertised something to you that is now not available, but of course it will be available later in retail, and I will be sure to let podcast audiences know when that happens. And also, of course, if you have Kickstarter money that you'd piled up in, in hopes, and you're listening to this within a month of its drop date, maybe you could go pledge for the Dracula dossier Kickstarter. Not telling you how to spend your money, but I think that would be a fine thing. Oh, I'm telling you to spend your money. The, this money that you didn't already spend on my thing, spend on Ken's thing. That's what this podcast is all about, people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to finding out what Stokerian stretch goals you'll be uh, laying out, but I guess that's a topic for another day, and let's get on to the first topic for this day. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the smell of whatever the hell that is behind the paneling tell us we've entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, it's time once again for Robin and I to sort of start with a thing and hope that an adventure comes out the other end. The same sort of thing that I do every Monday night, although usually the thing that I start with is something like the Great Rail Strike, <laughs> as opposed to whatever Robin is going to say. So Robin, what are we going to riff on? Give us our riff. So after Gautama Buddha died, who's the uh, the Buddha everybody in the West thinks of when they think of the Buddha, although he's the Buddha, the, the Buddha. Uh, right. If you're a Buddhist, there are he was one in a, a line of them, but the but most he's like the one. share of Buddhas. Sure, I mean there's, there may be other shares, but who cares? Exactly. Uh, but he's the one who uh, formed all the precursor philosophers into what we uh, know as as Buddhism. And uh, when he died, uh, all of the uh, different tribes around him who he converted to uh, his philosophy, uh, some of whom exercised Buddhism in a more warlike fashion than others. <laughs> so by converted, you mean told about and then shook his head sadly. <laughs> uh, well, yes, not the... Uh, not the only world religion to be uh, given lip service by uh, guys with swords. Yes. Um, and so, at any rate, uh, they revered him enough that uh, they all wanted a portion of his ashes after his cremation. And so, historically, there's a big event where all of the local rulers show up and there is a dispute over 
the disposal of his ashes. Now, if we're going to use the thing Ken always says, we would actually set this adventure in early India. In 6th century BC India. <laughs> yes, but I think that if we're going to riff something and uh, do something that relates to mythology and kings, I think a sort of a natural space for that is your sort of F20 role-playing game fantasy world. So how are we going to use this real-life historical event and transpose it into an F20 experience that the typical band of F20 players is going to want to engage with. So here's our big historical situation. It's rife with drama. There's all sorts of directions in which you could take it. What do we want to use as our way of drawing our band of heroes into this story? Well, I mean, I think that the first thing that we need to decide as GMs is what do the ashes actually do? Right? I mean, if these profit ashes are only usable at the macro scale, like you scatter them over your kingdom and it's immune to orcs, as opposed to you snort them and you're immune to orcs, then those are kind of different questions. If you can just steal the ashes and use them to make magic with, that's going to be a different sort of a... It'll attract a different sort of, of, of bad guy or player character. I, I sort of feel like I would like this to be... Uh, to keep this one element the way it is in the original story, so mm -hmm. that having the ashes is a measure of political power and status. Right. So that if the if you're one of the local uh, lords or kings who's showing up at this place and you walk away without a portion of the ashes... Then that's a diss. You have failed. Right. And if you walk away with more than your share, you have demonstrated your status. So that right. you've got all of these powerful, heavily armed men have shown up uh, to this monastery where there are monks who are unprepared to enter this level of, of politics, them being monks and all. So all the different men with swords show up. What happens then? So what uh, this sort of suggests to me that maybe the player characters, if well, let's assume that they're the typical... Well, there's two ways to go, right? You make your player characters the vanguard of one of the, the lords, mm -hmm. you know, preferably yeah. a good guy lord. Or if you want to go with the sort of standard, you are a group of wandering problem solvers... You are the guys the monks bring in to prevent this from descending into bloodshed because it would certainly ruin the legacy of your holy prophet. And possibly get the monastery uh, burned to the ground. Indeed, yes. So which one of those do you think is, is richer and why? I think it's more fun to be the guys who work for the monks. Um, and I think it is because, first of all, if you are part of you know Lord Kragar's retinue and Lord Kragar sends you ahead and says, make sure you get my share of the ashes or at least make sure that Lord um, uh, Neldrim doesn't get any ashes because he's a jerk. That gives you a sort of a good opening gambit, but once you've started doing it, you wind up playing a lot of static, I, I, I think, adventures. Or you say, "No, I'm going to get a you know a third of the ashes, and then we're just going to book out of the out of the scenario, and we're going to run back to Lord Kragar with our with our uh, urn or whatnot." I, I think it's more fun and certainly more pregnant with different kinds of problems than if you are the guys who the monks bring in and on the theory that, you, you know, they haven't brought in a bunch of first-level guys to take out a bunch of 20th-level paladins, that you are capable of handling one or maybe two lordly retinues, but you can't handle all of them at once. And even if you thought you could, it's, again, a great way to get the monastery burned down so that you have both a political problem that your guys get to solve because the monks can always say, oh, we have to be in, in meditative retreat because our prophet died and, and we, have to, we have to keep talking to the gods. We yes, can't. These, these worldly matters are, will simply draw us into a world of entanglement. So yes. here are our representatives who knew, know something of the worldly ways of swords, and they will determine the distribution of the ashes. And so this immediately puts you in danger mm -hmm. because uh, you've got to figure out a way to keep everybody happy enough that they all go away, not only without killing each other uh, and burning down the monastery, but also not coming after you for unfairly distributing the uh, the ashes. Yeah. So we've got our premise now. What is our opening scene and what choices do we present to the characters in the, in the opening scene? I think the first thing we have to absolutely prevent is them saying, okay, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 18 guys, we're going to weigh out the ashes and everyone gets one eighteenth of the ashes. I think at the very least... Someone has to, some really powerful noble has to say, no, you can't give any ashes to that guy because he spat on the prophet when he was alive. And if he takes ashes, it's going to be a desecration. There has to be some reason that the simple, obvious solution doesn't work. And the sooner you present that, the sooner you can 
start toppling the players into the pinball of Lord Kragar versus Lord Neldrum. Right. And and then and the less it appears to be a contrivance to uh, bring us to a, a callback from a previous episode. Yes, right. And that can be a con- as contrived as you want, because that, again, is, is the thing that starts it off. And especially in an F-20 world, it's much harder to spot a contrivance yes. uh, when it happens than it is in, if, in, if you, in most If fiction. it's the premise, it's not a contrivance, it's the premise. Right. Um, so, I, so there has to be some reason, and ideally, I would say two or three reasons that you can't split everything up evenly. And maybe it's just that the guy who's absolutely, no, I'm on your side, I believe that we should split everything evenly, is the guy with the giant ruby skull on his helmet. And, you know, the armies of orcs and hags that followed him and are, you know, really careful not to touch any of the holy uh, inscriptions on the walls of the monastery. And so you're like, oh... I don't want to do what the Necromancer Lord says, even if it does. And it, Oh, man, can he bring back one-eighteenth of the prophet and send his holy foot out to... Oh, this is terrible. And so you have to disassociate yourself from that guy, yeah. and especially by saying, look at him, he's a necromancer, get him. And then You've got to establish the precedent that uh, not everybody gets some, and some of the people who show up are, are disreputable. Mm-hmm. And so typically in an adventure, what you then do is kind of break it out into scenes or units... Uh, this isn't a dungeon where you go to each room where you then encounter each of the retinues, but you've got all the retinues in the camp, and that gives the players a lot of choice if you sort of have the opening scene where you give them the, the exposition or the preferably the handout that uh, has a little you know picture of the face of the leader of each, uh, of each lord of each retinue and a little description. And then your first question is, well, who do you want to go and talk to first? And uh, you can discuss that for, let's say, uh, un- until it starts to bog down. But, you, you know, within five to seven minutes, because the thing with this is that you don't want to have a hour-long discussion of who you talk to first, because mm-hmm. that's not moving the story along. But then, so the players can see what possibly some of the trade-offs are in going to, uh, you know, this guy first as opposed to that guy first. Because and it's absolutely important that the, that the other lords don't just sit quietly and wait for you to do a series of boring conversations. They have to be acting proactively. They have to be trying to bribe you. They have to be trying to sneak their thief into the reliquary to take some ashes or swap it out with the ashes of some other guy that they just burned to death on the road. You know, whatever. There there has to always be more going on than you just sit and say, okay, um, if you just fill out the form why I should get profit ashes, yeah. then we'll There's talk to you. a bunch of people doing things that interrupt your orderly Uh, You maybe like start with your orderly choice and it makes Mm -hmm. a difference um, who you talk to first because everybody else in the camp is going to go, oh, well, that that guy is obviously the the guy who's uh, uh, the preferred choice is going to get the uh, lion's share of the ashes. He'll get the head or the heart. And so um, ideally, if you can set it up so that the it's the choice that they make of who to approach first and there's going to be you have to have a reasonable number of candidates because otherwise it then becomes too hard to choose. But let's say there's three or four obvious choices for the first guy you uh, you approach and then it's the choice that you make that then sets into motion the set of things that the other people do so that you know lord b might start fomenting rebellion in the ranks of lord a if he's the first one to be approached but if you approach lord c first he's not able to do that he doesn't have the contacts in that camp and so you might want to have enough of a preliminary recon that you sort of have an idea of what the possible repercussions are so that you get enough of a briefing at the beginning to know that Lord B has sympathizers in Lord A's camp, but not in Lord C's camp. And so that you can sort of, uh, so that it's not just arbitrary choices that you're making or uninformed choices that are generating the uh, options that you're given, uh, which is, uh, you know, not really true choices, just sort of a disguised railroad, but that you're, first who you decide to first approach has pretty clear possible consequences i think that again this is going to tie into things i always say because that's the whole point of always saying them the more your characters already know about the geopolitical situation the better this adventure is going to work if yes, all it is so. is just a bunch of paragraphs and it's like lord Kragar has got guys in lord gagar's camp but lord gagar doesn't have any in lord neldrum's camp you're going to be just oh you're going to be bored writing it much less the poor players so if you're setting it in an F-20 universe and your characters are high enough level that they're credible interlocutors for the monastery, hopefully they've already made enemies, they've already met some part of the land, they've already gone to a mystic island and fought a dragon. They've got a bunch of stuff going on. So you make sure that the guys, the warlords who are sending their 
their representatives to this are representative, literally, of everyone the player characters have ever interacted with, or the top ten, or the top nine, or whatever number you feel is, is the right rhythm number. And I think nine might be a little high ordinarily, but what you want is a sense of a crowd around, and there's no really, you know, the, everything that, that, that happens is going to screw somebody, so you can't use my standard three to five option here. But you should definitely be doing callbacks, you should be bringing people in, or if people have only said, well, at least you're not the Purple Empire, thank God for that. Oh, no, you can't go to the Purple Empire. Well, that's a Purple Empire poison. That'll kill you five times as fast to make your fingers fall off. Then, when a guy from the Purple Empire shows up to get his share of profit ashes, they they know what that means, as opposed to you writing on the little handout, the Purple Empire is badass, you know, because that's not going to say anything to anybody. Right, and even if it's a one-shot, it's stronger to say, you know, you're a former bodyguard to Lord uh, Kragar, and uh, you were briefly in an alliance with the uh, rival to Lord Pogar, and so you like this guy, and this guy would uh, poison you if he had the chance. Mm -hmm. So that even though it's still the GM presenting the information to the players, it's presenting the information to the players through the lens of you already know this stuff because you earned the right to know it, rather than the vizier shows up to give you the half-hour briefing. And then that also allows you to skip a big chunk of the briefing, and then the first time you met Pogar, you can then say, and of course you recognize him from the time he tried to run you out of his... Uh, castle after failing to uh, agree to marry his uh, his daughter. Yeah, and and another thing you can maybe do, depending on how, what kind of time frame you have, is if you've got your list of factions, you give it to the player characters ahead of time, and you say, you know, pick three of these factions and say how you interacted with them. And ideally, you know, if, if you've got bad players, you can maybe make one of them be a negative interaction, but let the players even pick if if it's a one shot, you know, as opposed because you don't care, right? Yeah, or you could, uh, if you want to speed that up, you can create little relationship cards mm -hmm. and random. Then, yeah, exactly. The little card me mechanic like in Gay and Reach and uh, Skullduggery. Uh, um, and what that puts me in mind of is it actually uh, uh, perhaps even more so than a tabletop scenario, uh, this would make a great LARP uh, scenario. Oh, this is a good LARP, you, yeah. Yeah, because it gives you the whole... And in that case, you're not just the the guys who are uh, appointed as intermediaries. They in, that, in a LARP, they might even be the, the event runners. Yeah. And then each retinue is then its own... Uh, thing and and so that way uh, in this scenario it becomes a lot more about building alliances between the other applicants because you can then go and say well together Lord Pogar and I have agreed that if you give us one third of the ashes we'll be happy and we'll we'll distribute that third uh, as we've already agreed and you'll already have two guys on board uh, willing to protect the monastery if everybody else goes crazy mm -hmm. and so the, you the uh, groups will be petitioning each other, and then finally they'll be petitioning the uh, the monks at the end. And you could have the you know the guy in the monastery who's pretending to be off meditating, but is actually planning this great uh, mystical working that is going to uh, turn out to be some sort of koan that uh, reveals what the ashes really are, and so forth. And so uh, I, I don't design LARP scenarios, so anyone listening, feel free to steal this. To, to jump right on that. Yeah, and the other thing that you can have at the end of the adventure is an outside threat that it suddenly manifests. You know, the guy that you, the Maleficent uh, tribe that you didn't invite shows up or the Mongols show up to, to shoot everyone full of arrows and, and, uh, and loot the monastery and take the magic ashes off to their, to their caravansary in the middle of the continent. Yeah. And, that's, that's your third act twist, yeah. which if you need it, uh, comes out of nowhere. And if enough conflict has been generated, you just stick with what you've got. Right. Uh, well, I think we've, uh, riffed that into something fun and can therefore happily move on to our next segment. Creating your own world for a new RPG campaign is a lot of fun. But Ken, what if our listeners hate time and effort? Then we commend them to World Spinner, a new tool that makes setting creation easy. Might this wondrous tool simplify map design? It not only might, but does. Generate a world in minutes, then spend as much or as little time as you like adding stuff and making it your own. It makes great maps, anything from a world map to a single kingdom. Its technology creates continents, mountains, climate, forests, and the ever-popular etc. 
Then add sizzle with themes and the adventures that flow from them. They're doing a Kickstarter to fund a bunch of themes from great authors and designers such as... Mer Lafferty. Elizabeth Bear. And Wolfgang Barr. In the business, that's known as the Mer Bear Bar Trifecta. And in the That's Not All department, John Wick. Philip Athens. And Lisa Smedman. To check it out, go to kickstarter.com and search for World Spinner. One word, no space between world and spinner. The smell of leather bindings and uh, fine, high-grade paper and the sweat of desperation on the brow of the writer clutched over his laptop as he attempts to complete uh, yet another brilliant manuscript tell us that we've once more decided to tell you how to write good. And uh, this time, uncharacteristically, I thought we would take a topic that grew out of another topic and address it not eight to 12 months later, but uh, relatively soon. So in our last <laughs> How to Write Good segment, uh, we talked about the Mary Sue character and whether the Mary Sue character uh, is technically a contrivance or not. I sort of feel that it's its own separate uh, form of uh, writing to be avoided. But like a lot of things, like the word contrivance or the word melodrama, that the term Mary Sue has kind of mutated over the years, and I would like to try and rope it back to its original meaning, which comes from the writing of fan fiction, uh, in which, uh, and I think it started in Star Trek fandom, it, it did indeed. where you had a, you know, a standard early cliche is that you had someone who was obviously the uh, stand-in for the author of the piece go on board the Enterprise and, you know, shag Kirk and teach Spock the error of his ways or vice versa or some combination thereof. Mm -hmm. And even among people who love fan fiction about uh, the original series, Star Trek characters thought that was kind of unsatisfying to say the least mm -hmm. uh, and ridiculous to say the most. But then over the years, uh, the term Mary Sue, I think, has expanded too much to denigrate a perfectly acceptable character who is not a stand-in for the author, who is a a main character who doesn't exist in the world of fan fiction and isn't there to portray your fantasy relationship with a, a movie star or a character <laughs> in a show, but is just a, a, what I would call an iconic hero, a problem-solving hero who is uh, super competent. And uh, I think some people who want to denigrate the idea of, of the iconic hero have taken to referring to them as a Mary Sue. So you will sometimes hear, well, well Batman is the ultimate Mary Sue character. And uh, I guess I'm starting off being here to beg to differ with that, that Batman is an iconic uh, hero. He is, uh, follows the, the pattern, and, and, and I think I always say his, the pattern of an iconic hero is they have an iconic ethos that they use to change the world rather than being changed internally, and they encounter some form of disorder at the beginning of the story, and then they correct it at the end and make the story more like them and more like their iconic ethos, and therefore... Uh, create a character, although it doesn't have to be uh, serial in nature, the ones that we all think about because they uh, repeat through adventure after adventure or story after story are the great iconic heroes like Batman or Miss Marple or, you know, House on the House TV show or the two lead characters in Sleepy Hollow, as opposed to your dramatic character who undergoes, say, a Joseph Campbell evolution over time from innocence to experience the way that uh, Luke Skywalker does. So if we do that, I think it excuses us from saying, don't write Batman. Because I think if... If, <laughs> if you can uh, write Batman, you just rush right out and write Batman. <laughs> so if we, you know, yank back the term Mary Sue sort of to a midpoint where it's about something other than fanfic, what is, what is a Mary Sue character that you want to uh, avoid having? Well, I, I think, first of all, um, I did not say that Mary Sue's were in themselves contrivances. I said that they gave rise to a lot of contrivances right, and that right. that was something that they created. Yes, we, we, did, we did hammer that out. And that is one of the ways that you can tell that your iconic hero may be a Mary Sue is if they keep re relying on the, the plot to save them or the writer to save them, then they are moving toward the Mary Sue because the point of the Mary Sue is you've entered this world and you suffer no real danger while you're doing so. You can approach Captain Kirk romantically, and he's not going to say, uh, get back to the anthropology section, and so I'm busy, you know, romancing a Klingon lady or whatever. He will, he will respond to your advances. You can talk to Spock without getting shot down by Vulcan logic. That you are, 
able to interact with the setting from a position of octorial invulnerability, often because you're an octorial stand-in. And I think that that is one of the ways that you can tell an iconic hero is that an iconic hero does take, you know, some hits. And those hits can seem artificial if summarized. Batman is, you know, very badly beaten up by the thugs, but then he beats them up. But if you write that Batman story in the comic book, well, it reads really, really, you know, it, it reads as though there's actual danger, even though in your heart, you know, Batman is not going to die um, right. or even be particularly discommoded in the uh, average 22-page adventure. So the connection you're drawing here is that the Mary Sue is a character who gets special dispensation from the plot to be protected. Mm -hmm. And the reason they are being protected by the writer is, well, A, probably they're uh, not so great at constructing believable <laughs> procedural obstacles yeah. that the character can get out on, which is sort of a separate... You can have that problem yeah. with or without a Mary Sue. You can just be bad at writing iconic heroes without necessarily making your iconic hero a Mary Sue. But also, if you, uh, as the writer, are so super identified with the character that you don't want anything bad to ever happen to them you then have the uh, the issue of your, you know, you want the stakes for them to be extremely low in order to, you, you personally as the writer, to not feel endangered by making your uh, fictional surrogate uh, face troubles or travails or your own real problems in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another sort of a problem that we face as lovers and defenders of the iconic hero is that there is a middle ground in which an iconic hero can be looked at as either a Mary Sue or, you know, what they call a Larry Sue if it's a guy, or the character that the author wants to sleep with, which is sort of a special kind of Mary Sue. But that character can create, on the one hand, Peter Whimsey, who is a great iconic hero and a, and a terrific guy and a, and a marvelous detective, as well as being the star of a lot of really, really well-written novels. But he's pretty obviously the guy Dorothy Sayers wants to get with. Right. And and having sex appeal in a character that features in popular entertainment is uh, sometimes an advantage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I think it's often an advantage. And I think that if you look at, you know, uh, Honor Harrington in the David Weber series, there is a certain element, not just of fan service in the sense of all, you know, the, the female readers of, of David Weber can say, oh, she has a cat that talks to her. That's great. But also... David Weber, I think, is is more than a little bit in love with Honor Harrington, and when bad things happen to Honor, as indeed they do over the course of the 95 novels or whatever it is, they are the sort that make her more in need of being saved by the David Weber stand-in, or possibly by David Weber. I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but if you look at, at that character specifically, it looks much more like a... A character out of a romance, let's say, which, again, there's nothing wrong with Juliet, but she's not an iconic hero, right? Exactly. And so to turn this specifically uh, less from critique into writing advice, when you are writing your characters, it is perfectly acceptable to have a character that draws on your own experiences in life. Or your own interests. Right. And in some ways reflects your own uh, issues and, uh, you know, write what you know can still be a fresh thing to do, particularly if you then transpose it into uh, a genre or create a, a heightened version of that. But you want to make sure that you're not letting your character off the hook because you identify with them, that you're, you want to make sure that, as with any story, that there are high stakes and you have to allow this character given the situation in the storyline to move away from what you necessarily have as wish fulfillment, right? Because all, all popular entertainment in some varieties is wish fulfillment. The story mm -hmm. of the iconic hero is our wish for order in an often disordered world, but there are elegant ways to frame that uh, wish fulfillment, including, you know, having losses along the way and incomplete victories rather than just the complete, adolescent fantasy of the person who never fails. I think a useful, uh, you know, a synonym for Mary Sue, if it's not someone necessarily that you uh, are portraying yourself, well, maybe this is a, the, the ultimate real life Mary Sue is the actor Fred Williamson, who was one of the stars of black exploitation movies in the 70s and 80s. And famously, he refused to ever participate in a scene in which his character lost a fight. Or had anything bad happen to him. Right. So that made him a great fantasy figure for people who were feeling marginalized and particularly the fact that, you know, in the 70s, suddenly there were uh, black male uh, ass-kicking protagonists and that was hugely refreshing. But once you remove all possibility of any setback ever, you're, you know, ripping out 
half of the possible elements in a uh, dramatic uh, toolbox. So you have to really be willing uh, to put your character uh, through the ringer and to threaten the character and must the character's hair because that makes it all the more satisfying when they pick themselves up, loom back into the frame, and go back into the building to get the guys that did them wrong. I, I think another parallel that you can draw on, if you're a sports fan, if you like watching football or baseball or whatever, and you've seen your team come back from a from a deficit and do something really, really clever. They ran a really great play in football. They made it an insanely great catch in baseball, whatever it is. Take that sensation, because it's not as though, you know, it's unrealistic for the Dodgers to, to, to win a baseball game, but when you're watching it... Statistically, statistically they often do. Yes, there, there are plenty of teams that it's far more realistic that they lose a baseball game. The Dodgers actually are doing pretty well. But the sensation of that triumph, and it's not a triumph over, you know, hordes of Nazis or cannibals or, or a serial killer. It's a triumph over another guy who doesn't want you to catch the ball that much, but it feels like a real you know, heroic triumph in that Greek sense of the hero is the guy who alters the universe by being there. And so your iconic hero, if you can write that triumph that you know and remember from sports into, and whether you've had it or, or had it only vicariously, like, like me, if you can write that same sense of triumph into your character, then you'll, you'll be fulfilling that iconic ethos. And then you need to do is provide a realistic or legitimate, I guess, amount of danger and challenge to make that triumph seem worthwhile, because it's not the catch that, you know, makes it um, uh, 28 to 2 that you care about. It's the catch that makes it 28 to 27. That's the interesting catch, and that's the one that um, uh, that, that you want to, to capture. And if you can, you know, draw on that sort of emotional and, and even tactical sense memory, you can put that into the story, and it feels even if the only thing that happens in your Batman story is Batman finds a crook. The crook has a, a device. It annoys Batman or injures him. Batman then beats up the crook. I mean, that's that's been a bunch of really successful Batman stories. The same sort of thing with uh, any sort of short story in which an iconic hero has to defeat the bad guy relatively rapidly and then win, because that's what he does and he's an iconic hero. Right. So you, you, you're going for that sort of emotional, tactical sense memory, necessarily, more than you're going for. You have to really, you know have a realistic, uh, you know, you can't lose a leg in a, in a story necessarily because there'd be no way for him to, to, to heal fast enough to fight the guy the next scene. Right. If, if you have a character lose his leg, you have to have a way for him to face the remaining obstacles in your plot line with uh, San's leg. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about in terms of the sports analogy is that you have to have a, a pass-fail cycle. Or for those of you who've read my book, Hamlet's Hit Points, you know that stories get their energy and engagement from the fact that the heroes face a series of setbacks and successes in an unpredictable but rapidly varied pattern. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you make sure that your Mary Sue has a pass-fail cycle, sometimes fails, sometimes succeeds, doesn't always win, and hopefully is, as the character develops, somewhat divorced from you and makes choices that you wouldn't make and is no longer just purely a vehicle for your own wish fulfillment, which I think is the core of the problem behind um, Mary Sue's, mm -hmm. but rather speaks to something broader and uh, faces the uh, occasional lingering loss as well as the uh, satisfying uh, victory at the end that uh, we have taught you how to write good. Yeah, and once we teach you how to write good, uh, we uh, pat you on the head and send you to bed with a glass of bourbon and into the next hut. once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jake asks Ken and Robin, how do I prevent gumshoe auto success investigative abilities from feeling like a railroad? PC arrives, I give clue, next scene. Um, I guess you don't do it that way. <laughs> it hurts when I do this, Doctor. Uh, Robin, do you want to sort of 
come at this again? Don't take this the wrong way, Jake, but I've included this question because uh, it comes up a lot, and I have to confess to being utterly baffled by it. And the answer to it is not going to take 15 minutes, so the rest of it hopefully will uh, will come to some understanding of why this question comes up at all, because... And it may be that the definition, it's a problem with the definition of railroad, which means a zillion different things. So um, for those who don't know gumshoe, uh, the idea behind gumshoe is it's never interesting to fail to get information. What's much more interesting is to get a lot of information and then try to figure out how to put it together. And so if you fail, it's a, a failure of interpretation rather than a failure of access. And so as a result in Gumshoe, when you have your investigative ability and you go to the place in order to uh, exercise it, let's say you're using your forensic uh, entomology ability to uh, determine uh, what that uh, strange ring is on that person's face. And in a standard uh, investigative game where you have to roll, you'd have to roll your forensic entomology skill. And if you got a success, the GM would tell you, oh, he's got ringworm, which is contagious. And here's this other fact about ringworm. And somehow that's important some way. And in Gumshoe, you do the exact same thing. You say, well, I, is there anything I recall from my forensic entomology ability about that sort of weird thing? Is that due to a parasite? And then the GM, rather than all that skips is the part where you roll and maybe don't get the information. You just do it and the GM tells you, oh, well, yeah, it looks like it's uh, not only is it is a, a parasite, it's probably ringworm and it's communicable. And, and so then you go on just as normal in any game. And you never take your character sheet and just, we are at this scene now. I'm going to list all of my abilities. Forensic anthropology, forensic psychology, forensic this, forensic that, and have the GM just spit information at you. You still have to respond to the things in the adventure. So in this case, the GM says, well, he has this weird... A ring around his mouth. Then you go to your abilities and say, "Well, I, do I have anything to apply to this pathology? Does this work?" And and so it's the same. And so why why people think that you would suddenly do that just because you auto succeed when you wouldn't do that when you have to roll is uh, kind of beyond me. And the other thing that's kind of beyond me is why the ability to fail and not go anywhere is equated with a railroad because by definition or, a or railroad is equated with not a railroad <laughs> yes <laughs> yes it's it's a pretty uh, a pretty poor railroad if it doesn't take take you anywhere and and there are probably all sorts of different games and probably ones that you worked on that you've encountered where uh, people who are looking at them from afar imagine problems in gameplay that don't actually exist around the table why do you think that the uh, the people envision this problem, which I think was a, a sort of a, a, a fallacy and one that I'd certainly, you know, I anticipated other objections to it, but not that it was railroady to let people succeed or that people would just rattle off all the abilities on their character sheet and not interact with the scene. I mean, I, I think that you're sort of conflating a bunch of criticisms, as is Jake, actually, of Gumshoe, because there's a little of what you talk about, about the, I'm just going to read off my things until I go through. It's sort of like the world's worst pixel bitching, you know, video game. And I think that we have, uh, perhaps with our notion of a core clue that moves you into a next scene, provided uh, a framework from which people can say, well, if that's all the game is about, is getting core clues and moving to the next scene, why am I bothering with it? And you could ask the same question about Dungeons and Dragons. If all the game is about is stabbing a bugbear and moving to the next room, why am I playing? Because it's fun to do that. <laughs> That's a core activity. Because it's what the game is about. And, and so I'm not, I'm, I, I don't want to like lean on Jake quite as much because I think Jake is, has brought, you know, a bunch of possibilities. I, I thank Jake for bringing up this important issue. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that, you know, with Gumshoe specifically, there is a, a couple of sort of overlapping approaches because a lot of people come into Gumshoe from Call of Cthulhu and Call of Cthulhu is famously a, a really, really terrific rule set and any departure from that, especially one that is highlighted as much as the auto success investigative is going to create not just curiosity, but skepticism of the sort that, well, I've been running Call of Cthulhu for umpty ump and everything's wonderful and it's the greatest game ever. And how can you say that this solves a problem that I have either subconsciously fixed or I was too good a GM to get myself into the box of in the first place. And so rather than just ask that question, which we also see a lot, they then make up new ways to ask that question because they think, well, it can't be as simple as that. And, and so they, they have sort of new interesting approaches to criticizing Gumshoe, or rather not interesting because it's been the same one for, for years and years, as you point out. I don't know that there's other games 
that I have been as intimately involved with as I have Gumshoe that have presented this sort of weird approach. I mean, obviously, if you've played a lot of BRP or RuneQuest, you have, oh, that's the game about cutting off your own foot. And it's like, no, that's <laughs> that's uh, Rollmaster. You're confused. And if you cut off your foot and it explodes, that's Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or a rat eats it and then explodes. And, and so there are other games, I'm sure, that have similar Michigan. I mean, people, like, they, when I talk about GURPS, and they're like, isn't GURPS, like, take forever because you have to use a million billion rules? And it's like, no. GURPS is a vocabulary. It's not a um, uh, a novel. Um, you, you can pick and choose from GURPS. And people don't really grok the simplicity of, of GURPS at its core because it's covered over with all this wonderful folderol. And I think maybe that would be the closest parallel to people coming up and asking the same damn question for, for a decade about a, a game based on the sort of the what it presents to the outside world as opposed to once you've gone through the door, what does it look like on the in, in, inside? I think to sort of uh, constructively answer Jake's question as opposed to use him as a, as, a, as a punching bag, which is an awful thing to do to poor Jake, I would say the way that you prevent that from feeling like a railroad is don't make it feel like a railroad, is present make the scene where the PC arrives an interesting scene. Give him lots of places to look for clues. Give him a lot of different things to look at and touch and do. Give him an obstacle that can be defeated with an interpersonal ability. Give him an NPC who's fun to talk to. You know, make it... If it's going to feel like a railroad because you have decided that you're only going to run a four-scene adventure, make it a really luxurious railroad with great scenery, and people don't mind that so much, really. Um, But I would say that the way to make it not feel like a railroad is provide more than one clue that leads to more than one scene. And then you can, you know, make it feel like whatever sort of geometrical abstraction makes you happy. Yeah, I think, uh, speaking of conflation, one of the things is that's going on, and often I think it comes more from the GM's uh, side of things, is that there isn't an, an equation of uh, anything that happens that is unpredictable is therefore not railroady. But what uh, generally happens uh, in a, a classic investigative game where you roll and fail to get the information that you need to move on to the next cool thing is that the GM then has to find out some other workaround for you to get that information. So that it's not, in fact, the case... Uh, well, I've certainly heard people uh, tell me that they had games that stopped dead and didn't go any further because someone missed a spot check that was required to start the adventure, which also boggles me. But more often there would just be a workaround where you spend another 20 minutes justifying why you got the information that you needed in the first place. And so I, I would argue that, that that's the railroad, right? That is actually all of this extra plot mechanics needed to get you to where you were supposed to go in the first place. Whereas if there's a number of different places that you can go from a scene, and I'm working on a big world-spanning as a terrorist campaign now, and uh, one of the, the things that I'm making sure to do is to make sure that there are different core clues in each scene that allow you to move to different scenes, and therefore uh, it is the order in which you choose to do things that will determine what direction the story takes. Now, because it's an investigative game, there's always an element where you are finally going to confront and uncover a big mystery, but the way that you get there is the story. It's just the way that the order in which you decide to fight the various dungeons and inhabitants is the narrative of your F20 game to the extent that it has one. Yeah, and and again, you know, the notion of uh, the railroad, once you look back on any story that you've played out, it looks like a railroad because you only went one direction at any given time. And, you know, the railroad might have twisted around or it might have um, uh, gone way the hell off into some eventually unproductive part of the world and then come back to the story, whatever it is. But you are only going one place at any given time. So it is functionally the same as if you were actually on a railroad and the GM was just very, very clever. So I, I think that the whole the whole question comes down to this sensation that if the game is moving along, there must be something wrong with it because we've never had a game do that. <laughs> Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, I, I think that, you know, I can, I, I give the advice of make sure that the, everything in the scene feels like a real scene. And if the player says, I don't want to go to this doctor's office, make sure that there's another place that they can go in the, in the town that something will happen and ideally do that before rather than after they've refused to go to the doctor's office. But at some point, as I say, you know, you're playing the guys who are going to wind up in the furnace room fighting that ghoul because that's what the adventure is, is the guys who killed the ghoul or were killed by it. 
You're, you're not right. playing the guys who said, I think there might be a ghoul here. I'm going to go off and um, uh, build a spaceship and go to Orion. And, and you, know, you might that's... be better equipped or, or less equipped to deal with the ghouls, depending on the choices that you made previously, right? You might have uh, gone to talk to the guy at the top of the hill who has the knife that is especially effective against ghouls. And you may have decided to befriend him or you may have decided to uh, annoy him. And that has an impact on how that story comes out, right? That you uh, still wind up in a furnace room uh, fighting ghouls, but in one version, maybe uh, one of you gets eaten by a ghoul, and in the other versions, all but one of you end up eating by a ghoul. Uh, eaten by a ghoul. Uh, that's not a railroading, except to the extent in which there is some advance prep by the GM. And you can have an adventure that on the page is very railroaded and is full of advice to crudely yank you back onto the track. But as a GM, if you just improvise away from those, uh, you can install choices that uh, uh, didn't appear in the original text. And uh, uh, conversely, you can have an adventure that uh, is rife with choice that the players nonetheless, because only one choice seemed obvious to them each time they made it, consider to be a, a railroad. And also because just as in real life, after things happen, we create explanations for why they happened and it seems much more likely. So if you if you win an award that you didn't necessarily think you were going to win, afterwards you come up with all the reasons why, oh, well, this is why I won that award. In retrospect, yes, I thought I was a, a lock for it. But, you know, five minutes ahead of that, before your name was read, anything could have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that we're sort of spiraled into a, a solid um, nugget of, of good advice for Jake, which is make sure that when you present a scene, certainly in the opening part of the of the adventure, or even down to the mid-game, that it does feel like there are multiple directions you could go to investigate that whatever it is. That you could go to the doctor's office, or you could go to the newspaper morgue. You could go to the hilltop to see if the ghouls are going to show up, or you could go down and talk to the cemetery attendant. And you could, you know, follow the rumors of the knife from the museum, or you could use your metal detector to find the, the, re the leftover star iron, you know, out in the in the blasted heath. You know, all kinds of Things that could happen need to be present, and your players need to be aware of those. And that's on you as the GM. That's not on the scenario designer. That's on you as the GM to make sure that when you present the, the, the circumstance, you've presented all of their possible roads to the furnace room fairly and as openly as their character uh, will allow. And obviously, auto-success investigative abilities let you present more possibilities by definition because... They reveal doors that the players might not ordinarily have known, but you can say, fortunately, as a expert geologist, you know that this kind of star iron is associated with the kind of uh, meteor crater formations you saw in the Blasted Heath out of town. And boom, now they have a, a Blasted Heath to go to. Right. In, in order to make meaningful choices, you have to have information. Yeah. And to get information, it's faster, more efficient, and I think more fun because it makes your character feel like a badass to get the information that your character would have in this sort of fiction. And in fact, one thing we're doing now in the Gumshoe Adventures is that in the scene headers, we're specifying, you know, this scene can be, uh, could be preceded by this scene, this scene, or this scene, and it could lead out to this scene, this scene, or this scene. Now, not all of them have the core clues in them to take you directly from this scene to one of the listed ones, but it may be that you already have a core clue from a previous scene that you were possibly have already at this point, so that at the end of the scene, you always have, uh, except obviously at the climax, you always have a range of choices as, as to as to what to do. Okay. Well, I think that we have automatically succeeded yet again in explaining Gumshoe, and hopefully Jake will be able to automatically succeed in running Gumshoe in the future. Right. And there's a new answer to my question, which is why uh, do people envision this happening? And now the answer is because they have not listened to episode 111 of our podcast. The alien black dog looking at us through the window and the gray alien drinking some bubble tea over in the corner tell us that we've once more entered <laughs> Speaking the... bubble tea, I like that. Aliens are the only possible explanation for bubble tea. Bubble tea is proof that uh, human culture is, is not yet dead, that we are, we are always finding new stuff to do. Exactly, because if magic. you're just a normal human with your normal perceptions of life, things are either drinks or they're solids. But it's the aliens <laughs> who said... 
you know, it could be both. I think th- I think this is an ancient astronauts, or I guess a 1960s astronauts explanation for a perfectly nice Taiwanese street food. They built the pyramids and they gave us bubble tea. Well, when it comes to nonsense, uh, the Elliptony <laughs> Hut is where we go to gather. It's, it is where we bring our bubble tea. You make a sound point. And for this episode, we uh, this is actually the second half of a uh, double episode that we recorded for schedule reasons. So I wanted to pick a topic that Ken could do standing on his head and, in fact, has been asked to address by Andrew Miller, and that is, tell us about Emanuel Velikovsky. Ken, who was Emanuel Velikovsky, and uh, when did he first come onto the scene with his crazy ideas? Um, Emanuel Velikovsky was a Russian Jew, and he emigrated to the United States eventually after the... um, uh, craziness of basically of Europe. He, he lived in Moscow. He lived in, in uh, went to Montpellier in France to study medicine. And when are we talking roughly? Okay. He was born in 1895 and he's, you know, sort of in, in, in probably not a terrific time to be in Russia or Europe or Palestine. He's in all of them. And eventually he picks America like you ought to and moves here in 1939. And while in America, he's, he's studied as a, as a psychiatrist. That's his academic study and you know so already he's involved in a pseudoscience before he's even gotten off the boat but he he had read freud's moses and monotheism and decided that that meant that oedipus and akhenaton are the same guy and wanted to prove that and in new york of course he had access to the new york public library and the new york museum of history and all the and all the other great stuff that you have in new york and began um to what am I? It's not self-educating because he was wrong about everything. Self researching. <laughs> he was a misinformed autodidact. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like like they almost never are. Gosh, um, but he he researched Egyptian history and he researched uh, the uh, rules of Egyptian chronology and decided that they were all wrong, uh, so that his Oedipus equals Akhenaton theory can exist. And while he's doing that research, he stumbles onto his theories of planetary catastrophism and. Uh, the fact that uh, conventional physics is wrong, <laughs> because it, it so often is, and winds up blowing up onto the scene with um, Worlds in Collision, which is sort of his big uh, magnum opus. He publishes that, or rather, uh, Macmillan, poor bastards, publishes that in 1950. Well, didn't this sell really well? Did, didn't Macmillan possibly do well by, with this? It was a huge bestseller. It was crazily uh, a good seller. Um, and part of why it was a good seller is because there was a giant controversy about it. Harper's and uh, Reader's Digest both plugged it because it was like, oh, look, the Bible is real, and someone has used the, the devil's own science to prove it. And then scientists were like, uh, what now? And <laughs> this being the 1950s, they had a, 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 a beautiful... Uh, a beautiful belief that if you just explained things really loud and made publishers uh, back down, that you could keep nonsense out of the hands of the American people, which means that they'd done about as good a job of researching history as Vilikovsky had. They, they had avoided too much no- nonsense and not been inoculated. Mm-hmm. And so Worlds in Collision comes out, which is basically the theory that all of the biblical miracles and plagues and such like can be explained by Venus being shot out of the body of the planet Jupiter caroming around the solar system, bouncing off Mars a couple of times, and passing over the Earth like a giant Venus-sized comet in a number of very providentially convenient ways for the children of Israel, and then sort of settling into its happy, if weirdly retrograde, orbit around the sun, and that all of the things that in 1950 are weird and mysterious about Venus can be explained, uh, assuming you don't believe in, you know, conventional physics, by this electrified pinball theory of the solar system. So he was not restricting himself to a single premise. No. One of the great things about Velikovsky is that he, when he is going to go out and blow up knowledge, it's not just going to be archaeology, it's not just going to be history, it's not just going to be um, uh, the the theory of of mythology and how it is formed, it's not just even going to be the the nature of of the planets, it's also going to be full-on astrophysics is going to Take it in the chin. Well, if, if you don't blow up all knowledge, some of it will get some, back some up. Some of it will cling to your book. And so, um, yeah, Worlds in Collision comes out. It, it becomes a giant, huge uh, sensation. And the controversy, of course, only increases the level of brouhaha and the level of sales. And that then basically means that a lot of his other books get published by Doubleday, by then becomes his publisher. And he does a book called Ages in Chaos, which sort of lays out 
his theory uh, for a radically reworked uh, history of the world. He does Earth in Upheaval, which is the next step of Ages and Chaos. He finally winds up releasing Oedipus and Akhenaton, which he'd been researching back before the war. Uh, Peoples of the Sea, which is the sequel again to Earth and Upheaval, and brings it all the way down to Mankind and Amnesia, which is his sort of psychological explanation for why no one ever finds any of this evidence that isn't Emanuel Velikovsky. And of course, like all psychiatrists, his theory is that people are too ill to understand the truth. And that, you know, that may be the dumbest thing that Velikovsky believes. And I'm counting the um, uh, fact that hydrocarbons falling off the planet Venus become the manna from heaven in the Exodus. Mm, hydrocarbons. Mm, delicious Venus um, oil. Well, you've cleared up a point of confusion for me because uh, I've not read Velikovsky, and I've always sort of in the back of my mind been, is he the planetary catastrophe guy, or is he the revised Egyptian chronology guy? And it turns out he's, he's both. both. And I want to just take a little parenthetical here to say that Egyptian chronology may actually need a little bit of revising. But, again, the fact that Nixon conspired to do Watergate doesn't mean the Illuminati are running the banking system, right? There, there, is, there is a world of difference between the fact that the dendrochronology and the ice cores and everything else give one date for the uh, explosion on Thera, and Egyptian pottery chronology gives another date about 150 years later. And, and remind us what the explosion on Thera was. There, there, there's an island uh, called Thera then, called Santorini now, that was basically a big volcano, and it blew up in roughly 1630 BC, give or take, and the give or take is the part that there's a lot of squabbling over, and it you know, was a giant catastrophe that left geological evidence all over the Mediterranean, and then may have also had some you know, uh, some some knock-on effect on Egyptian history, and it almost certainly really screwed the Minoans and let the Mycenaeans sort of move into that power vacuum. But the bottom line is that if you dated that explosion purely by the pottery that you find lying around in Crete, underneath that layer of volcanic ash, you come to a different date than if you date it by dendrochronology and ice cores. So there is something wrong with Egyptian chronology, but it is not it is not so wrong as Velikovsky thinks it is, and it is wrong in a different way, right? I guess. Not quite the different direction, but still. Uh, Velikovsky is bringing Egyptian chronology from 3,000 years long to about 1,000 years long. He winds up eliminating about 2,000 years of Egyptian history, give or, again, give or take, because he is refining his thesis over time. And then the, the actual uh, discrepancy is about 100 and 150 years. And again, they may have fixed that. I mean, the archaeologists may finally have started taking the calls from the dendrochronologists, and they may have worked out some sort of uh, new position. But Right. I, th I think that is in, in process of being done, but does not uh, need to resort to Venus. Uh, no, you don't need to involve going Venus off course briefly. <laughs> flying past the Earth and dropping hydrocarbons, or carbohydrates even, on the children of Israel. <laughs> so, uh, Velikovsky is sort of one of our... Uh, Er, crackpots yeah. of the uh, of the twentieth century, on which our fictional versions of other crackpots are based. As crackpots go, how much f fun can be mined for fictional or gaming purposes from his cracked pottery? Well, first of all, he has the great advantage of being, at least to me, who is a guy who grew up on that sort of confident mid-century big scope history, of being a really readable writer. I just enjoy his prose, and I think that that may be a personal taste thing, but I like his pseudo-history a lot. It's a lot better than, say, Zakaria Sitchin's pseudo-history, where aliens from the planet Nibiru landed and, and built Sumeria back in 80 million BC, or whatever nonsense Zakaria Sitchin says. Uh, Sitchin is writing, well, he's writing like someone whose first language is German, uh, and his second language is Sumerian. <laughs> Velikovsky <laughs> writes, uh, he, he has, his prose style has a lot in common with Isaac Asimov, so if you read Asimov's uh, Guide to the Bible or Asimov's uh, History of the Near East, and then you read Velikovsky's, there's a lot of similarity to their prose style, I think. Right, and it, because it wouldn't have been a bestseller if it wasn't popular in some way. Right, if it was hard to read and whatnot. And, and, and it, it's not, you know, as breathless and, um, uh, and sexy as Von Daniken, but it's also less racist than Von Daniken, so that's nice. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very fond of it, and I think that the, the stuff that he thinks about is great material, especially for, uh, like, the Madness dossier, where the, the big reveal is that history is wrong. Or um, his 
uh, alternate astrophysics shows up a lot in uh, the novels of James P. Hogan, who has written a lot of science fiction novels in which the, <laughs> the, the, the thing is not faster than light or time travel, it's that Velikovskyanism is true. And I think that's because James P. Hogan is actually a Velikovskyanite. But if you read his novels as a sensible person, you can see a lot of potential for the what if Velikovsky is right uh, gaming that can happen. And I'm, I, I think his uh, uh, revised chronology is a, a great deal of fun because more stuff is all mashed up together. So that makes for a good setting. But I think that the real Bronze Age is crazy enough you don't really need to have imaginary Bronze Age. Yeah, it seems to me that just from the description that Velikovsky is the crackpot whose works are illustrated by Jack Kirby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of that Kirby-esque, why have one planet when you can have two planets smacking each other around type uh, approach to, v- to Velikovsky. He- he's not quite as uh, grandiloquent as, as Kirby, but there's there's some, maybe that late Kirby, like the Eternals. I think that the... Yeah, that's what I'm picturing. Yeah, there's some real possibilities for, a, for, for, for Kirby dots uh, falling off Venus and Mars. Velikovsky says, for example, that the shape of cometary Venus is why we have dragons. Um, which is just a, the kind of thing that you don't get from your from your weak, tired, uh, easily exhausted elliptomy nowadays. Yeah, well, d- due to our neuroses, we can't uh, perceive the reality of that. <laughs> yeah, that's why it is. So you were commissioned to write a one-shot convention uh, scenario in a system of your choice uh, based on uh, an element of Velikovsky's uh, writing. Uh, what is the premise of that scenario and what system do you run it in i think the premise of the scenario the fun one for a for a one shot would be and i guess this depends on the audience because if it's just a standard old convention audience what you do is you run a full-on exodus fantasy game and you run it in you know some you know for me it would be something that i like uh, savage worlds that i can run a really fast game in and as you think, all right, we're going to be doing the Ten Commandments, and then planets start going out of line, and uh, Greeks uh, from the Trojan War start showing up, and you're like, what the hell is this? This is just, it keeps getting one louder every time that the act shifts. Or, what would be more fun for a, for a more select audience would be like a time watch game in which you've gone back in time to do something boring in the Bronze Age, and you discover you've gone back in time to the crazy Velikovsky in Bronze Age, and that the more you jump around trying to fix it, the more you... You start contaminating all the other time streams with the more powerful, robust uh, Velikovsky Exactly, the more screwed up the chronology gets. And so your goal is to figure out what is the MacGuffin, the, the, the trigger thing, that caused your time machine to jump sideways into this weird timeline, or did you actually poison the timeline somehow and how do you prevent venus from being shot out of the um uh, out of the planet jupiter with just a time machine seems like a big chore that's a that's a big chore and so you'd want to have i think sort of a stargate feel to that with the um uh, with with various um orbs and gems and whatnot i think that would be fun right well yeah because for that to work there'd have to be some dudes with agency who are going to make it happen that you would have to stop Right, yeah, you you go beat them up, but finding them in the 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 morass of Velikovsky and chronology would be the fun thing. But you'd want an audience that ideally is familiar enough with the Bronze Age that when you change it, they go what as opposed to huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is, might be a select audience. Yeah, well, I again, I, I ran a lot of adventures for University of Chicago graduates. Yes. So. Well, I, I can imagine your group all coming to you and saying, saying this time's the Velikovsky game finally. <laughs> yes, <Whew. laughs> there's a there's a break for us. No. Uh. Um, so I guess to close out, uh, if anyone is inspired by this segment to dive into the deep and turbid waters of Velikovsky, is Worlds and Collisions uh, their starting point? Worlds and Collision is a good starting point. And another author that they can check out is David Roll, R-O-H-L, who has done uh, very pretty coffee table books that are as respectable as you can get and still be Velikovsky. And he... <laughs> Really <laughs> downplays the planets moving around. The, they may not even show up in his books, but he definitely has all kinds of crazy chronological goof around. And once you you know look at it, it's like, well, that's that's interesting. And and so David Roll presents sort of the National Geographic version of Velikovsky, but Lord's Own Collision is still just as maniacally crazy as ever. The only trouble is that so much of what we know about Venus is different. 
um, and was completely uh, wrong about uh, from what uh, Vilikovsky uh, postulated because he was working from 1950 Venus, not post Mariner Venus. That uh, the, some of the fun is gone um, now because it. it is just really clearly... It's become unlikely-seeming. <laughs> well, I mean, if you have pretend evidence, the fact that your pretend evidence is also going away, is, is it's, it, it, it weakens the book a bit. But I think right. that you well, can... That's why we need new crackpots for new generations. New crackpots for new times. But yeah, you can still read Worlds in Collision, I wouldn't say profitably, but uh, enjoyably. I think as um, Stephen Jay Gould said... Uh, gloriously wrong is, is the way to look at, at Vilikovsky. Don't look at him from a pinched, narrow mindscape of, oh, he's harming science. Look at him from the exciting mindscape of, he's presenting science fiction and doesn't know it. Except it's, you know, <laughs> considerably more fiction than um, uh, than a lot of stuff. Um, well, I guess that uh, once we get to the bibliography, we've gotten to the end of our podcast or podcast, as uh, Americans say. As they do. Well, podcast, I guess, is more Boston, right? So I guess we're, uh, we're done for another episode and back for more exciting hijinks next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. World Spinner. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Prove your no one's Mary Sue by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or revised historical timeline by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>